Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. We're going to begin a brand new four-week series that I'm really excited about. We, uh, last week we had a little bit of a vision night. We talked about there's a picture of a garden that's going to be kind of taking us through the year and how a garden comes about most of the times because there's someone who's hungry. So you start to grow food. And so we wanted to begin this series talking about and trying to cultivate a, a growing hunger and appetite for God and the things of God. Um, to be honest, I don't know if there's a greater prayer I have in my heart as a pastor than to shepherd a community who's hungry for God, who wants more of him. And we're going to be looking at this really through the, the lane of prayer. Prayer, interestingly enough, both exposes our hunger for God and also is a vehicle that satisfies our hunger for God. And prayer is an interesting topic because across every single culture that anthropologists have studied, and across every span of history the historians have presented, there's not one group of people that does not have record of some sort of prayer. It's not unique to a certain kind of person or personality type or ethnic group. It's a human thing. Humans pray. I, I was just thinking back over some of the moments that I've experienced outside of San Diego where I've witnessed people pray in such a way that have been unique to my own experience. I remember being in the Dominican Republic a few years ago, working with an organization called Plant With Purpose, and we were stepped into a cinder block building in the rural forest of, of the DR, and I was watching these farmers pray fervently for rain, for the right amount, for the right kinds of soil, for the crops to be able to grow, grow to provide for their kids. And I was so moved by their level of passion that, honestly, I don't think I had seen to that point. I remember being in the Middle East in Amman, Jordan, the first time being in a nation that had very little Christian presence whatsoever. And every few hours, over loudspeakers throughout the entire urban center of the city, an Islamic song would be sung out over the city and people would stop what they were doing and face towards Mecca and they would pray. I remember being in Mexicali, Mexico, a couple hours from here, watching a woman come in with a grapefruit-sized growth on her abdomen, severely in pain come in, and a small Pentecostal Mexican preacher praying a fiery prayer over it, and I physically watched it diminish to nothing. I remember being in Israel when I would watch Hasidic Jews moved towards the Western Wailing Wall, many of them with tears, writing their prayers on parchment, rolling them up and stuffing them into the limestone brick wall. I remember, interestingly enough, probably one of the most surprising places I saw prayer was in the Dubai airport at 3 a.m. as I went to go use the restroom, and next to the restroom, there was a men's-only prayer room that was being active at 3 o'clock in the morning. I remember when Jenna got to visit Ireland about 10 years ago and we were looking at Skellig Michael's Island that became famous from one of the more recent Star Wars movies where Luke Skywalker was hiding out. If you guys remember that kind of the, the black honeycomb stone huts. Those were built over a thousand years ago by monks 
who traveled to the most western frontier at that time to do battle against evil spirits that were coming from the sea. And for 500 years, monks stayed in these huts praying. And as I was just thinking about those different places, what struck me is how vastly different those cultures and beliefs and types of people were, yet all of them were moved to prayer. I thought about some of the hardest times of my life, I'm like literally most painful moments of my life, and what I can remember is every single time I can recount prayers. I remember some of the greatest highlights of my life. I remember when each of my children were born, and uh, there was, I wasn't like, I didn't have it planned out or anything like this, but I just found myself praying over them and God knows over me as I was about to embark on this new journey. Prayer is one of the most human experiences we can ever have. Rabbi Heschel says that prayer is our humble answer to the inconceivable surprise of living. Brother Lawrence says, there is not in the world a way of life more sweet or more delightful than continual conversation with God. The Canadian psychologist David Benner describes prayer as this. The soul's native language, our natural posture, is attentive openness to the divine. But before we start thinking that prayer is like, it, it's human, but it's for kind of the, like, the spiritual people, I think it's interesting to point out some people we wouldn't necessarily put into that camp. Abraham Lincoln was reported to say that I have been driven upon my knees many times by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. My own wisdom seemed insufficient for the day. Conrad Hilton, the entrepreneur who founded the Hilton Hotel chain, in the last part of his autobiography wrote, in the circle of successful living, prayer is the hub that holds all the wheels together. More recently, the rock star Dave Grohl of the Bamboo Fighters was talking about the grief of his best friend and drummer Taylor Hawkins. In an interview, he said, I would talk to God out loud as I was walking, as he recalls um, leaving the hospital room where Hawkins would lay there in a coma. He says, I'm not a religious person, but I was out of my mind. I was so frightened and heartbroken and confused. So Dave Grohl, all he could do in that moment was pray. I think one of the most startling examples for me as I look throughout human history of prayer honestly comes from Jesus. It seems that if anyone got a pass on prayer, it would be the one that people pray to, right? Like, he's God. You seem like he could have a better use of his time than praying. But you cannot read the Gospels and notice how much Jesus gets away, stops everything, prioritizes getting away and praying. Mark 135 says, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If we look at his, before the launch of his public ministry, he fasted and prayed for more than a month in the wilderness. Before he chose his 12 disciples, he prayed all night. When he heard the devastating news about his cousin John who'd been executed, he says, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place to pray. After feeding the 5,000, understandably was tired, and his response was to climb a mountain and pray. When he had the pressures of fame threatening to crush him, Jesus prayed. When he was facing his own death in the Garden of Gethsemane, bleeding with fear, failed by his friends, he prayed. 
even during the most imaginable, unimaginable hours of physical and spiritual torment upon the cross, Jesus spent his last breaths in prayer. And if there's anyone who didn't need to pray, you would assume it might have been Jesus, but if there's anyone who's ever taught us to be human, it's him. And he prioritized it. And so on one hand, there's nothing more natural than prayer. And on the other hand, I don't know if you agree with me, there's actually something that doesn't feel as um, underutilized in my life as prayer. It feels both natural and human, and both also very hard to institute as a discipline in my life. Why, why is this thing so accessible and natural and yet so hard? And I think the answer we can find, once again, in the garden. There's a really interesting turning point in the story when Adam and Eve choose to take this, this fruit as they're deceived by the serpent and we get this very unique window into what God's relationship was like with Adam and Eve before sin entered the world. It says, And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? It's almost as if the author is telling us this was a normal thing. God is showing up to do what he does all the time with Adam and Eve. He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day for a conversation. And so when he shows up, it wasn't to bust them. When he shows up, the surprise is they're not there. And so he asks, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So in this moment of available, constant conversation and communion with God, for the first time they found themselves hiding behind the trees. We find another verse, they made fig leaves coverings for themselves. Because why? Because they were naked, they were exposed and vulnerable, which by the way, they always were. And they wanted to, for the first time to, to hide that. And I think that that, little story summarizes so much of what prayer feels like for me. It feels mysterious and beautiful and welcoming and what I really actually want. And at the same time, there's a part of me that feels a little, some prohibition in me that just feels like, I don't know if I can go beyond the trees. And even if I do, I probably need to cover myself because I don't, I don't know if God really wants to see the real me. I'm not, I'm not going to probably talk to God the same way that I'm going to talk to my friend or my spouse. Or, it just feels irreverent. Actually, to be honest, it's, it's one of the hardest things I've had to grow through in my own relationship with God is my inability to get beyond the trees and just to walk with him in the cool of the day fully exposed, fully vulnerable, not trying to hide anything from him. And I think that one of the, the greatest invitations of this is if we can somehow do that, if our prayer life can get beyond from being hidden behind the trees, and if we can get to a place where we are no longer hiding even the things that we don't want God to see, then all of a sudden we can recapture what was available once again in the garden and we'll see things differently. Philip Yancey says this, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. And so what I would like to do tonight is I wanted to point something out that I believe is critical for us to move forward the next few weeks when it comes to prayer. And it's, it's not the 
technique, it's the posture. And what I wanted to do is I, I realized that I'm, I'm talking to a room filled with people who live incredibly busy, stressful, filled lives. If you don't, you are for sure in the minority. We don't have the luxury living where we live to not live a life of hustle and working hard and trying to be at the top of our game, otherwise it doesn't work to live near the coast in Southern California. And so it, before you kind of start writing this off, like, oh, this is for the people, like, you know, who are taking a gap year and they get to go and have, like, prayer pilgrimages or something like this, I wanted to point out four incredibly busy, pressurized people in the Old and New Testament who lived lives, I would argue, probably more stressful than all of ours, and that when God invites them into prayer, he deals with this unique posture of stillness and silence. Because that's the posture that it seems that God is after when it comes to recovering the posture we want in prayer. And so we're going to look at four different characters here. Number one is Elijah. Elijah being the model of someone who is over, just had an overbearing sense of ministry. Moses, who had the pressure of surviving personally and then leading an entire nation into their own survival. David, who had the king of the, the height of Israel's monarchy, had occupational stresses we couldn't imagine. And lastly, we're going to end with Mary, who had to undergo extreme cultural pressures. And all four of them had a very similar experience with God where he wanted to deal with the stillness and the silence of their heart. Let's begin with Elijah. Elijah, if you don't know, is one of the very few Jewish heroes of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, when they summarize all the prophets, they'll refer to it as Elijah. When they refer to all of the Old Testament writings, they'll refer to that as Moses. So Moses and Elijah are kind of the two big guys in Jewish uh, narrative history. Elijah became famous for a lot of different reasons, but one of those was this story that happened where the nation of Israel had completely walked away from God, their king and their queen had decided to erect these huge monuments to this false god named Baal or Baal. And so they had hundreds of these false prophets. And so Elijah goes to them and says, let's have a battle. And so they said, like, what do you have in mind? They're like, let's see which god's real, Yahweh or Baal. So let's go up on this mountain. We'll create an altar. And then we're going to sacrifice an animal on it but we won't bring any fire. And our God, whoever's the real God, has to provide the fire from heaven. And they said, great, let's do it. And so they started walking up the hill, just ready for a nice brawl. And he said, okay, you guys go first. And so the prophets of Baal began to do these incredibly strange, ancient, barbaric practices to call down their God and the fire from heaven. And hour after hour went by. And Elijah actually engages with some, like, top-shelf trash talk. He literally says he's leaning back, and he says, oh, maybe your God's using the restroom. Scream a little louder. This is in the Bible. I love it. Just taunting them. And after hours of them literally mutilating their body, trying to get their God's attention, Elijah just comes up and says an incredibly simple prayer. And in a moment, fire comes down from heaven and absolutely engulfs not only the sacrifices, but consumes the altar itself in an instant. And so all the prophets end up dying from this, to this, this radical movement, and everyone's looking at Elijah like, oh man, we've got this way wrong. 
Well, the queen in particular sends a message to Elijah and says, you're dead. I'm coming for you. So now Elijah's on the run for his life. And as he's running away, fearing for his life, which is a little bit strange based on what he just encountered, he comes and he's about to literally die of dehydration and exhaustion, and he collapses underneath this tree. And an angel shows up, this is one of my favorite Bible verses, and gave him bread and something to drink and told him to take a nap. That's for someone in the room. Okay, that's your verse for the night. Go to Prager Brothers. Go get some nice Carlsbad alkaline water or whatever your thing is. Take a nap. And then he wakes up, and it happens again. It's just literally tending to the physical needs that he's going through. This is where we pick up the story. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached, this is key, Horeb, the mountain of God. Just keep that in the back of your mind. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, you can tell the angst in his voice. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The, the Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore through the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Some of your translations might say a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And God once again says, Elijah, what are you doing here? There's so much about this story that's incredibly captivating. One of the surprising things is that this very famous mountain of God meeting with people, we see God do this violent wind we see an earthquake and we see a fire. By the way, these are all times in the Bible where God speaks through those means. But it says this time, God's not in those things. And then came a still, small voice, a gentle whisper. And at this, Elijah comes out and moves closer. And he starts to hear Elijah. What are you doing here? And he goes in to kind of to reroute Elijah's life and calling and anoints Elisha from it. It's this incredible story, but there's something about that story for me that the, the, great, the greatest prophet in Israel's history, what he needed more than anything was to be still, to encounter the whisper of God. P. Gregg says, if we want to get better at hearing the one who speaks in a still, small voice, we must befriend silence. If we are to host the presence of the one who says, be still and know that I am God, we must ourselves become more present. 
The second person I want to introduce you to is Moses, who had his own unique pressure. Number one, he's on the run for his own life because he killed an Egyptian in trying to protect his own people. So he's now fleeing to the desert. And this moment we're about to read tonight is the hinge pin where he gets called to lead an entire nation of people, about a hundred or so, about a million people or so, out of Egypt into the desert with no food or water and has to keep them alive for 40 years. You think your job's stressful? Just saying. This guy probably had one of the worst jobs ever. But listen to what happens. Exodus 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came, here it is, to Horeb, the mountain of God. Same place. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had, that he had gone over to look, God called him to him within the bush. And Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So check out this moment. He's leading his sheep probably to a place he was been familiar with. He's walked this route a thousand times before. And while he's there, there begins to have a strange sight where there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not actually like burning up. So he's like, I love the author. So he goes over to see why the bush is not burning up. And as he goes over to it, God speaks to him and says, Moses, Moses. And then he says, here I am. And then God gives him one instruction before he has, he has this not only life-altering, history-altering moment. And this is what he says, take off your shoes. The place you are standing is holy ground. And I think that's really insightful when you realize in Genesis 3 the problem in their relationship was trees and fig leaves. So when God calls Moses, he says, hey, if we're going to start this thing, I don't want any layers between us. Take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. Which is interesting because what are sandals used for, especially in a rocky desert? For protection. Self-preservation. God says, I want you to take those off. And I want you to come and stand in my presence. Fully vulnerable. Fully honest. Another interesting point about sandals in those days is there was no shoe store. You made your own sandals. They were the work of your own hands. And so in a way, God is saying, I want you to take the work of your own hands and put it aside. And I just want you to come. And there's something about this picture on Mount Horeb, this sacred place like a garden where Elijah is met with a whisper, Moses is met with an invitation to remove layers that would prevent him from being in the holiness of God. That I think is starting to set the stage a little bit. What is God after when he starts to, to converse with us? The next person I want to turn to is King David, the most famous of all of the kings in the Jewish monarchy. 
is also famous for some interesting reasons. Number one is for his prayer. We have more recorded prayers from David than any other person in Scripture that even comes close. And so, if you look at David in his fame, um, it's interesting because he gets this title, like a man after God's own heart, which to me is a bit confusing because, like, David's moral character was awful, to say the least. Like, if you just look at some of the stuff he did, he would never work for Light Church, ever. Like, he probably couldn't get, like, a job anywhere. Like, this guy is just, like, so messed up in so many ways. And I think that there's something about that that actually gives us an invitation to see what, what was God seeing that we wouldn't. What was the condition of his heart that God would say, this is someone who's after my own heart? And I think we find it in his prayers. And oftentimes in the prayers, he'll say things like this. Psalm 37 says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. And again, you might be like, hey, all this stillness talk, that's great, but you don't have my boss or you don't know my company. You don't know what it's like when finals come around at my school. And listen, I get it. I don't know your life. Uh, just so you know, I know a lot of people think pastors work one day a week. It's awesome. You guys should try it. It's great. Um, but my, my occupation is actually quite demanding. I have four lovely children, high school down to elementary school age, a beautiful wife of 16 years. I'm still a full-time student in grad school. Um, we, uh, we had a dog and someone gave us a puppy last week. Pray for me. Like, so I, maybe in a small sense, I, I get how life can just be nonstop. Like, I, please hear me. But I think David could as well. We don't know what it's like to be living in a time of just savage tribal warfare, constantly trying to assassinate you, not just other tribes, but your own family trying to come against you, constantly fearing for your life, not to mention how many wives he decided to marry. I don't know how you figured that one out. Like, this guy's not living this cush life. And yet in his prayers, he continues to have this refrain, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. The Christian philosopher and the head of the USC philosophy department, Dallas Willard, once said in an interview, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy? After one of his long, famous pauses, he offered this response. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. A guy named John Mark Comer stole that phrase, wrote a book, and did really well for himself. It's a great book. You should read it. Michael Zigarelli, um, out of Messiah University, did a five-year study, over 20,000 Christians in the United States, and in his study identified busyness as the number one distraction from life with God. And so I wanted to show you a summary of his research that he did after five years and 20,000 interviews. Number one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, number two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, number three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, number four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to, number five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And then the cycle begins again. 
The Catholic writer Ron Rollheiser says this, in the fall of humanity, we master the art of hurry. And so we end up as good people, but as people who are not very deep. Not bad, just busy. Not immoral, just distracted. Not lacking in soul, just preoccupied. Not disdaining depth, just never doing the things to get us there. This week, we got to go up with our staff to Joshua Tree. It's become a little bit of a tradition of ours, and I, I love it. Um, largely because of the silence and stillness that the desert holds. So one of the things that we do is we will come together, we'll chat through what it's like to hear the voice of God, and then we'll send everyone out into the desert to spend some time alone with God. And it's, it's this rare kind of silence in the desert. It's no traffic. It's not a lot of even animals. At the moment we were out there, there wasn't really a breeze. And so you could hear everything. And it was amazing in that moment just to be aware of the vastness of God. It reminded me of one of David's prayers in Psalms 8. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. In Psalm 46, verse 10 David assembled this group of people called the Sons of Korah, which essentially were his worship and prayer team that were working around the clock. And comes this very famous verse that we're going to come back to at the end of the sermon tonight. And he says, and they record God's response to us. He says, God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. It is in stillness that we have the capacity to start seeing God exalted in the world that he created. Last person I want to talk to you is about Mary, because we've got to get a lady in there, right? We can't just talk about three dudes. And I've got to be honest, Mary's kind of my favorite. Like, she is becoming more and more just kind of my own personal biblical hero. This isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is not Mary Magdalene. This is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who died and was raised again. So just for framework, lots of Marys in the gospel time. But this Mary in particular did some pretty radical things. We're going to focus on one of them tonight. To set the stage a little bit, Jesus um, has just done something new in his ministry. He took 72 of his disciples, he kind of yoked them up two by two, sent them out with his, with his authority and says, go, deliver people from demons, heal the sick, make the lame walk, preach the good news. And they go, and guess what happens? They do it. And so they come back and they report to Jesus, like, demons are fleeing, people are getting healed, and they're just like, look at my hands, like, this is amazing. And they're coming just with this, this buzz around, like, look at what's happening. And, and, and in this excitement and all the energy and all the stories that must be going around the campfire, it says they end up in this town called Bethany, and the stories of not only Jesus, but his disciples are starting to grow in their fame and their attention. And in Luke 10, 38, it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha 
was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Now, hold on, check yourself. If you're starting to like, kind of like demonize this Martha character, like I can't believe her. I would never, ever in my wildest dreams do that, pull that kind of stunt. Let me just help us get our minds around this. When this story is being written and being read for the first time, it is within an ancient Eastern culture where the highest value that governs your entire life is this word called honor. Honor not for yourself, but for your family. It's not guilt, it's not success, it's not your personal happiness. It is if it brings honor or shame on your family. Every decision you make, every trajectory you have for your life is filtered through that one single grab. It is what brings honor upon your family. Now, how you brought honor on your family was determined by the role that you had, the gender that you had, and the age stage you were in. So, Jesus comes to town. Martha invites him into her home to throw a meal for him. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. She's bringing honor on her family by doing this. We don't see that invitation coming from Mary. We see Martha working tirelessly, probably for days leading up to it, and definitely the entire day, hours, hours on end to get ready to do this thing. Good thing or bad thing? Good thing. You're bringing honor on your family. She's doing exactly what she'd be doing. But then we're introduced to Mary. Mary enters into a men's only dinner. Is that going to bring honor or shame? Shame. She's taking the seat at his feet, which was reserved for the number one rabbi's student, which had to have been a male. Does that bring honor or shame? Shame. And so Martha, in her desire to preserve her family's honor, bursts in and she calls out. She's doing everything she thinks she's doing that is right and good. Jesus, like, I, like, I'm so sorry this is happening. Please tell my sister to come and do what will bring honor in our family because we want to honor you and we want to make sure we're doing everything right. And as she's going on this rant that would have made absolute sense in that culture, Jesus interrupts her by saying, Martha, Martha, which is more likely just one Martha just yelled out. Martha, because literally if I stop her mid-sentence, I, go, I, I get what you're saying. But the Lord answered, listen to this, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. And some of your translations will see a dash, like there's a pause. It's something like Jesus, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. To the shock of every single ancient reader and person in that room. Can you, could you imagine the turning of the events in that moment? Mar Mary is doing everything wrong in a cultural standpoint. Literally, uh, probably gearing up to face the level of cultural and relational backlash that is going to come from this shameful act. And in that moment, Jesus stops Martha and says, and number one, shows concern for her, says, you are worried and distracted on many things. She says, oh, there's only a few things that are needed. And then he stops himself and he says, actually, only one. 
is Mary has chosen what is better. He wasn't saying what she was doing was wrong. Please hear me. We kind of, again, kind of villainize Martha. But Jesus wasn't trying to say what she's doing was wrong. He says, if I'm going to give a level of importance here, there's one thing, please hear this, there's one thing that matters to me more than anything else. And it was the same thing that mattered for me in the garden. It was the same thing that mattered for me in the mountain Horeb with Moses and Elijah. It's the same thing that mattered with me with David. And it's, I want you with me, nothing between us. I want the posture of your heart to be stilled, postured, listening to me. Because if you can... If you can harness that, everything changes. Everything flows from that. If we truly want to increase a hunger for God, then we must come to the end of ourselves and the end of our busyness and the end of our own self-importance to say, God, you're actually what I'm craving more than anything, but I'm too preoccupied hiding behind the trees and the fig leaves of my life and the sandals that I've made to actually get to a place to actually just be with you. I have to do the hard work like Mary did to fight through the cultural pressures of my day to find myself in the most scandalous place possible, and that's just to be with you. How do we do that? How do we do that 2,000 years under the wake of the enlightenment and the technological revolution and the fast-paced life and the affluence surrounding us? How in the world do we prioritize stillness before God? My friends, I don't, I don't claim to know all the answers to this, but I want to just echo the words of Jesus. There's one thing that's needed. Go ahead and take your eraser and just, just wipe off your, your slate, your whiteboard, your calendar. And if you were to start all over again, what's the one thing God's after? And if I'm, if I'm looking at the scriptures right, seems that we can't talk about techniques of prayer without talking about the posture of our heart. We need to be still. We need to listen. We need to be at his feet. We need to recover our insatiable appetite for the presence of God. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to do a little prayer exercise tonight. Um, if the worship team is around, you're welcome to come join me. Um, this is something that Jen and I got to do on a retreat a few years ago, and um, it's honestly, I don't remember what the heck the retreat was about or what we did or even who was there. I remember this exercise, though. It was so transformative in my life. I'd never done anything quite like it. And so just to kind of set this up a little bit, and even if you're watching online, I'd encourage you to participate in this, too, is we're going to take the, the verse in Psalm 46, Be still and know that I am God. And we're going to meditate on that verse. We're going to read it, and then we're going to sit in silence, and we're going to practice being still. Then um, we're going to actually start kind of whittling that verse down to just a few words and ultimately just to a word. And as we do that, we're going to use as an exercise just for us to turn off all of our natural human propensity to want to do or to produce, and we're just going to do our very best under the Holy Spirit's empowerment just to be with God. 
And so this is what I'd like for you to do right now, if you can. Um, I want you just to get to a place where you can feel focused. For me, I like to actually sit up straight, put both feet on the floor. Um, for me, I, um, sometimes I like to close my eyes. It helps me focus. Sometimes closing my eyes makes me distracted. So maybe just like look at the back of the chair in front of you or something like that. Or, um, but whatever you need to do, I know sometimes for me, I'll put literally my hands on my lap open-handed and just go ahead and just take a few deep breaths, kind of get yourself comfortable and aware of your own body, your own breathing. And then let's just enter into just a moment of, of silence. But in our silence, we're not trying to empty ourselves of anything here. This is not kind of an, a nod to Eastern meditation practices. We are actually trying to focus and center ourselves around Jesus and his presence. So I'm going to read the start of this verse. And then we're going to respond about 30 to 60 seconds of silence. And then I'll read another section of it and so on about five different refrains, and then we'll step into a time of worship. Come, Holy Spirit. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still.
Heavenly Father, we, we sense your invitation back to the garden. Lord, we want to hear your whisper as we stand at the edge of a, of a cave, Lord God, in the midst of all this chaos. Lord, we want to take off the sandals as we step on holy ground. Lord, we want to be like Mary, finding herself and fighting for a place at your feet. And Lord, like David, we want to hear you speak to us. Be still and know that I am God. Jesus, you are what our heart truly longs for. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.